Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're shining a light on personal finance trends for Canadians with special guest expert on the topic, Rob Carrick, journalist, author, and podcast host. Rob is personal finance columnist at The Globe and Mail and has spent 27 years with them. His in-demand insights can be found in his newsletter, Carrick on Money, available twice weekly. Rob joins host Brian Borsakowski to share the personal finance topics and trends he's focused on right now and in the months ahead. Today's podcast was recorded on June 21st, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Rob, thanks so much for being here. Glad to do it. So let's start off with what is on everybody's minds today. Inflation, rates, a potential recession. What are you hearing from readers? Is this weighing on them? What sort of questions are you getting asked about this? Well, when it comes to the cost of living and inflation, those are like the those are sort of the two biggest personal finance themes of the day. And there's two streams out there. There's the people who are really struggling with this, the younger households, the families who recently bought houses and their mortgage rates have gone up. And then you have people who are more established, you know, who've been in the housing market for a while, who don't owe as much on their mortgages, who are more at the peak of their career earnings. And they're doing okay right now. And you can see that in how consumer spending was just reported today. It is rising on a steady track. And as much as the Bank of Canada wants everyone to cool it on the spending, the households with money are feeling good and they're spending money. They're traveling this summer, they're buying cars and expensive cars, and they're doing okay. But there is a segment that I guess you're, you're finding is feeling is feeling the pressure. Without question, but it's, it's specific segments of the population. Okay. Recently, I've written about uh, single senior women, there's a particular group who's really struggling, you know, rents are soaring and there are single women who, whose partners have died or their lifelong singles are finding it really tough to afford their rent. Um, younger people uh, who are trying to find affordable rentals get into the housing market. Maybe they bought houses recently and their very boring mortgages are now ginormously more expensive than they were 18 months ago. They're under a lot of stress right now, and I struggle about ways to, to, you know, to offer helpful advice. But at this point, you know, you can only tell people like you can only offer them like tips for cutting their groceries so many times. If people are going to do that stuff, they've done it. We're now at the we're now at the point where we've used up all the great ideas, and we're just sort of hoping for relief. So you've been covering uh, you're a Globe and Mail call uh, personal finance columnist for what twenty years now? Is that is that right? Twenty plus years, probably close to twenty five. How has people's relationship with money changed over that time? What have you noticed about maybe the evolution of interest in personal finance and just kind of how people think about their savings? People are massively more interested in personal finance. And one of the reasons for that is the Internet has made information so much more accessible. And so people are taking advantage of that. But I think there's also more pressure on people to get it right on their finances. You know, it used to be you could do the right things. You could try to contain your debt and save some money for retirement. And, you know, you could trust your bank to give you a decent mortgage rate. And life was pretty simple. 
Uh, but today, you know, more and more people are realizing that they have a responsibility to save for their own retirements. They don't have uh, company savings, uh, company pension plans. Houses are a lot more expensive than they were relative to income. And so it's a much bigger financial proposition. Um, there's more accounts to save in. You know, you've got, you have always had RSPs, but we have TFSAs now and first home savings accounts. And I think people are, um, they, they realize they need to raise their game. They're struggling to do it with some success in some areas and with not as much success in other areas. Um, I, I guess another complication is debt. You know, when I first started uh, my column, uh, debt was, you know, something you did reluctantly. You bought a house with debt, you bought a car with debt. You didn't really use debt for too much more than that. And then I saw the rise of the home equity line of credit and, um, this growing acceptance of debt. So I think that's complicated things as well in terms of personal finance. Before, people were very debt adverse. Now, in addition to all the other complications we have to deal with, they're carrying big debt loads. And, you know, that seems to be sort of baked into the system right now. I wonder about retirement. There's always big headlines that people are not prepared. Um, they're not saving enough. Uh, but there's a contradictory information around that. From what you're hearing, well, what do you see? You know, there's certain themes that I keep seeing year after year after year. One is that people are very stressed about their money and they couldn't afford a $500 emergency. And two is that people aren't saving enough for retirement. And you know what? Life rolls on and people are retiring and they're making do and they're making out okay. They're figuring it out. You know, when we say people aren't saving enough for retirement, what is the right amount? Like, like I think it's different for everybody. So to, to make these blanket statements that people aren't saving enough for retirement, I think they're a bit silly and I think they don't actually look at what people actually are doing and what they actually have and what they can actually expect. And only when I have that kind of analysis am I willing to say people aren't saving enough for retirement. I do think they should save more. I really do. But um, I don't think we're in a crisis. And I see that word used much too often uh, in the retirement savings uh, you know, area. I don't, I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's a, a source of, of concern and it could get worse. I'll, I'll add that. But um, you know, I think people are doing the best they can. And, you know, maybe some people will retire later or they will make do with a lesser lifestyle or they're moved to a cheaper place. But, you know, I, I think I think we're, everything's holding together for now. Um, we're going to we're going to move into sort of advisors and, and what people want from their advisors. But before we do that, just just trends, any other sort of big trends that you're seeing uh, out there right now? Um, the, you know what? The trend that's always bubbling out there and it seems to be bubbling up now is housing. You know, people are very, very, Canadians are so invested in housing. I mean, I don't have to tell advisors that they're probably, every time they probably propose something in the stock market, a balanced portfolio, it's yes, but what about a rental property? I've heard the term rental property more in the past 18 months than in the past 18 years. Um, so housing's big and it seems to be, you know, I mean, I don't want to make a prediction that it's, you know, it's on fire again, but it is coming back from the depths of, of where it was, say, earlier this year. And, um, you know, I don't know if that'll hold. It may just be a blip. But I think, you know, when you see when you see a house prices go up, it basically creates more interest in housing. And, um, you know, that's what people want to talk about when it comes to finance is housing. Why do you why do you think it's going up? I mean, that's like completely contradictory from what I think everybody thought would happen. Why do yeah. you think it's happening? Yeah, no, it's, it, it is a bit of a mystery. And my, my theory is that um, there's enough money out there that, are, that can afford to buy houses at today's interest rates. And they're looking at prices that have come down, you know, 20%, roughly speaking, on average from the peak. And they're saying, you know what, 
if I slot in that 5% mortgage rate, I can buy it today's, at today's prices and they're doing it. I mean, there's still hordes of people who would love to get in and can't because it's too expensive, but there's enough people out there who think it's not a bad deal at today's rate. So I know I'll pay a high mortgage rate today. I'll get a, I'll get a lower price when I buy and hopefully in five years when I renew, I'll have a much lower mortgage. Um, we actually got a question in that I think would be good to ask now. Um, it's just how you decide what to write. There's an endless amount of topics I think out there. You know that that that, that is um, that, that's my number one challenge is finding interesting things to write about. Um, but I'm fortunate in that I have uh, all kinds of different pipelines uh, for for stories. And one of them is advisors. I have a network of advisors who I've met, who I've exchanged emails with over the years, and they often send me, "Have you noticed this?" My clients are talking about that. And that is a great source of information. And I would love to hear from any advisors out there who think they've uncovered something interesting that would make a good call and topic because you're people who have your ear to the finances of the nation and any insights or things that people haven't talked about yet but are interested, love to hear that. Here's my own life experience. Like, what am I doing? I mean, you know, uh, you know, am I saving? Have I got a mortgage? Am I stopping for a credit card? Do I discover I need more life insurance? All that kind of stuff generates calls. And then readers, they send me emails. Like I get them like every five minutes, I get a reader email saying, Rob, I'm worried about this. Um, why is this happening? You know, has anybody else experienced this? Uh, and then some guy wrote me an email. He's on vacation and he just paid for his hotel. And the hotel rate that he was quoted wasn't what he expected. It was different rates for different nights. And he wanted to know whether other readers have been reporting that. You know, so that's, that's my life. I get people talking about personal finance all the time. And of course, friends and family are always saying, you know what you should write about. Right. <laughs> I'm sure you love that. Um, <laughs> well, you know, every so often I get an idea, I have to admit. <laughs> um, so let's move on to kind of uh, advice. So in, in 20 years, you were talking about, you know, personal finance has changed. How has the advice industry changed? What have you seen um, there when it comes to the kind of the evolution of advice? Well, that, the advice industry has changed a lot. And so is my view of it. It was very sales oriented, very uh paternalistic when I first started. It was, you know, sit down here and let me tell you what mutual funds you're going to be buying. And then that was really the extent of it. It was the, it was it was the golden age of mutual funds when I started. You know, the Globe and Mail used to do a monthly news uh paper insert to the newspaper on on mutual funds and all the performance and interviews with managers. And funds were so popular that that edition of the newspaper would sell out. And people would send me emails saying, how can I get a copy of the of the June mutual fund supplement? I'd have to say, well, you're out of luck because it was a hot number. And so there, it was all about selling mutual funds. And I mean, that's really how the advisory industry in Canada sort of grew up. Um, but I've seen it turn much, much more uh, holistic. I, I mean, financial planning is being talked about more and more. And I mean, it's not everywhere. Um, but I hear the phrase coming up a lot, and um, I know clients are looking for that. And I think there's an understanding now that you need to be sort of a, a coach and a planner as well as an investment manager. And I think if you have like a three-pronged service proposition like that, you are really in tune with the times. You know, uh, I mean, I look around at what's happening today, and I think there has never been a better time for advisors to demonstrate the value they provide. People are very confused. Advisors have answers and suggestions. It's a natural, uh, it's a natural world partnership. There's this, you know, conversation about the of value, the value advice. Adv advisors offering more value. What does that mean to offer value to you? Value equals answers to questions. 
Um, people are like exploding with questions. And I know because they ask me them all the time. And I often think if you had a financial planner or an advisor, you would have the answer to this question and you would have it in much greater detail than I could give you. In fact, I often don't even tackle the answers. I mean, I think, how can I know what your big financial picture is? But these people are hungry for answers. They want to know, basically, are they okay? I mean, basically, the probably proposition is answering questions and telling people, are you okay? You, it may, they may not be okay, but you are, uh, the advisor is the one who will get them to okay. I think that's really what it's, what it's all about. I mean, we've migrated so far from, here's your portfolio. You made 6% last year. You're up this much since the last quarterly statement we made. Um, I, I, I think the industry would die if, if that's all it did, because there are so many good low-cost uh, alternatives to, to uh, having someone manage your portfolio that way. The value is in the advice. It's in the, it's in the talk. It's in the interactions uh, and in the explanations and the coaching and the support. I mean, it's like that in a lot of industries, that consumer-centric kind of approach that's really evolved over the years. And that's, uh, it sounds like that's kind of the same thing that advisors should be thinking about. Right. You're, I think what you're saying is it's evolved away from the transactional yeah. to the relationship. And I think most definitely in advice for sure. So you said that, uh, you know, now is, you know, an amazing opportunity for advisors, but a lot of people still don't get advice. So how do you close that gap between the people who need it and don't get it and, you know, the advisors out there that can provide it? Well, I think advisors, I mean, to, to some extent, there are high net worth clients that advisors want who could use their services. And I think advisors maybe need to tune their outreach to something, something a little bit more holistic than making it about the investments, about I, I'm your I'm your financial problem solver. We can we can tackle, of course, your investments, but also your financial plan, your estate planning. You know, you want your kids to get into the housing market. We can look at that. I, I think I think there's something to be said for that. Um, but there's a whole chunk of non-high net worth people who would be willing to pay for advice if they understood a model where they could do that. And so I, I mean, some planners are working on a fee-for-service model. And whenever I talk about it at events, people go nuts. They love the idea. I always say, email me at my office. Here's my email. If you want this spreadsheet I know of that lists fee-for-service planners and advisors. And I get dozens of replies and the replies don't come in all they don't just come in that day or the next day they come in weeks later i was at your session two weeks ago and i remember that you said this people start sending the emails to me during the sessions on their phones okay so the this resonates um it's not an ideal model for a lot of people but it just tells me that there's a group of people who want advice and they don't see the traditional i'm going to pay trailing commissions or i'm going to pay an account fee doesn't work for them or at least it doesn't work for them where they are now I'm also optimistic AI can help. You know, there's a lot of advisors. It's just not economical for the advisor to work with someone who can only afford this much of a portfolio and is only going to generate this much revenue. Fair. A business is a business. But these people do need advice. And I think there's revenue to be made off them if you can scale the amount of effort required. And I think AI may help with that. And I'm really curious to see what the advice industry does with AI. Can you scale down a product for a smaller client? much less hand-holding and personal contact, but it will address their needs and answer their questions and tell them whether they're okay. I challenge you to do something on that because I think there's a lot of people who could really use it and I think there is money to be made. And do you mean like AI around sort of communication or actual investing or where? How, where I think where? AI says we feed in the variables and AI says, okay, you need to save much more for retirement. You need to have a, 
you should put this much in your TFSA and this much in your RSP. Um, I think your house will be worth this much. And if you sell it at age 80, you'll be able to pay for any sort of long-term care and all that stuff you need. I mean, I think what we need to do is sort of say, there's five buckets we need to address in the, in the AI plan. And we'll, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be the deluxe gold plated comprehensive financial plan. It could be something very small. In fact, I think people would rather that than the big plan. In fact, you could do the home buyers plan, the I'm 50 and I'm worried about retirement plan, all different products. Uh, that uh, I think people would really engage with because they're so specific. I mean, there there are tech tools out there. I mean, maybe not as AI is obviously still evolving, but ways to make projections, you know, run your business better. Are advisors making use of those tools, do you think? Um, as should they be embracing technology more? I think they absolutely should be embracing technology more so that it frees up their time to have more personal contact. Um, I think that's that's the key. I mean, I, I, you know, I realize that there's, you know, this is it's time consuming and some clients you probably don't actually want to talk to. But this is this is where you are different than the technology. I mean, I can go buy an ETF that gives me a balanced portfolio like that. Done. Investments taken care of. I just put money into that. What else you got? It's you talking to me about everything else. Like I'm putting money in the ETF. What do I want to do with it? Where do I want to go? How much do I expect to make? What can I do with that money? That's what advisors can really add value doing. And if they've got um, technology for doing the planning and the projections and the portfolio building, they can talk it through with their clients, um, you know, on Zoom, by phone, in the office, whatever. And I think that's where the relationships are made. It's like, is my advisor, do they know me? Do they um, do they understand me? And are they demonstrating that? That's what you can do in the time that you've freed up because you're not doing all the all the uh, you know the spade work. You just wrote a column uh, just about you know people relying on their house for their retirement, and I, I wonder the conversation advisors might have around real estates and putting all your eggs in that one housing basket. Is that going to get more complicated uh, as time goes on? And how should advisors talk to clients about that? I, I hope it doesn't get more complicated because I already sense that people are way skewed over to real estate and they're thinking about investments. Um, uh, you and I were talking uh, before before the session started, and I said I think I was mentioning I have heard the phrase rental property more in the past 18 months than in the previous 18 years. Um, it's just everybody thinks that's the way to go. And, you know, if you see real estate coming back, as we were just talking about, people are going to think, I need to buy a property because that's what's going up. Oh, housing had a slump. Oh, sure. But it's now it's coming back and it's going to produce big numbers like it did in the past. And people feel real estate is a better place for their money than the markets. Not everybody. But especially younger people. I mean, I hear, I cannot believe how many younger people I'm hearing about. I want to have a rental property. That's going to be my, that's going to be sort of my investment plan. I think there's, there's been a lot of tension, I imagine, in a lot of advisory conversations about where money should go. And I think that will continue. Um, what the country really needs is a big, sharp real estate uh, decline. Uh, I think, you know, we, we got a, we got a decline from the peak and it wasn't enough to scare people. You know, look what happened in the States. They bought themselves like 10 years of common sense on real estate through the crash they had, uh, which was very severe. Uh, but people are starting to come back. Uh, you know, real estate starting to starting to come back in the States. Here it never left. And I think that, I mean, I think a little perspective would be very helpful. Uh, but right now, people think uh, they, they talk to their neighbors and someone sold their house for 20 percent more than they bought it for a couple of years. They think that's better than stocks. That's what I want. 
I wanted to just talk to you about what you're seeing um, amongst different generations. Uh, everybody sort of, uh, you know, needs different things. Maybe if you can go through each one, starting maybe Gen Gen Z and then kind of going through. What what are you seeing uh, among the different generations for their needs for money and saving? Well, Gen Z is trying to, you know, get established in the workforce and get into the housing market. Now they're having a lot of luck in the in the in the job market because it's been quite receptive, much better, much much more receptive than millennials faced when they when they graduated or started graduating, you know, ten plus years ago. Um, but Jensen want like, they want to get into the housing market, but they're giving up. Uh, now you know, I mean, when a twenty two year old says, "I'll never own a house," I say, "Well, let's talk at thirty two and see how you're doing." Um, but there's a uh, there's sort of a a pessimism. Uh, a feeling that there's they will never own houses. They wonder whether they'll be able to retire. Um, I, I think Gen Z, you know, they're young and they're seeing a lot of stuff lately, and it's they're impressionable and it's making an impression. And I think it's um, I think it, it's scaring them a bit, but they do understand they need to be in the game and invest and save. So I think you know for the advice business, they're receptive. I mean, they know they need to do stuff. So it's just a matter of. Getting them, getting them settled down and, and, and figuring out sort of an order of operations for them. What do you need to do first? And then we'll do this and then we'll do this. And if you're 22 or 25, you can buy a house in 10 years from now and it'll be A-OK for you. Uh, millennials were sort of like this sad case. They graduated like after the uh, financial crisis and they were, they were sort of having trouble in the workforce. But I think they're, they have settled down. A lot of them have got houses. So they've got all the concerns of young homeowners. Gen Xers are, um, you know, they, they often, people who are Gen X often tell me they feel like the neglected generation because they're kind of between boomers and millennials. And, um, but I think there's, they're, they're, they've got, they've got some traction. I think they're doing okay. And boomers are, are you know, boomers are great. You know, they've got their houses have doubled and tripled in value and they've been in the stock market long enough to have made some very nice gains. And so my sense about boomers is they're worried about, keeping their wealth, they're worried about taxes, and they're worried about validation of what they've decided to do and where they're going. Did I do the right thing? Am I on the right track? I get so many, am I on the right track questions. The, the, for, for the advice, uh, for the advisors out there, uh, you know, do you have to treat each generation differently? I'm sure they want to interact differently with, with their advisors. I think you do. I think you do. You know what? I don't think a, a model that's very successful for boomers is going to resonate much with Gen Z and even millennials to some extent, you know, they want it. They're very tech oriented and they understand that tech can tech gives you efficiency, accessibility and low cost. And so I would I would be if I'm dealing with younger people, I would recognize that a lot of what advisors do or some of what advisors do can be done with apps and and things that people can operate and manipulate for themselves. And so you, you would need to be explaining, sure, but here's what additionally I offer. So, you know, you, would, you might be using these apps to invest and build a stock portfolio, but are you buying enough? Are you well enough diversified? Are you, what's your goal and how are you doing in reaching that goal? Is your goal even realistic based on what you're doing? Um, I see, think you sort of see, need to say the tech's cool. But let's have a bigger conversation about what you're doing with it. So that that I think is uh, important for young people. Whereas the, you know the older crowd is is all about I've built this and I want to keep it and I don't want to pay I want to minimize the taxes uh, and I want to get you know, I'm afraid of the OAS clawback. Oh, but they are uh, anyway. They um, you know they're very centered on keeping what they got. 
Um, are you hearing more from your readers who are using equity from their homes for discretionary purposes? You know what? People don't talk about that. You know, if it's a bad debt use of their of their HELOC, people don't really talk about that. They may, you know, they may like if they're talking to their friends or family in a guilty sort of way, say, yeah, we put that on our um, but for discretionary purchases, people people don't tell me, oh, you know what? I just uh, you know I just bought a bunch of new clothes or a new all new appliances with my with my home equity line of credit. They tell me, oh yes, I'm using it to invest in property or I don't or I'm or I'm leveraging for in the end of the market and stuff. Um, they they tell me their you know their sort of their heroic stories, but I, you know what? It's quite obvious people are financing their lifestyles with their with debt. It's it's happening. I see it. All the numbers show it. Uh, but it's not much talked about. Um, next housing question: As mortgages come up for renewal, is there another shoe to drop? Well, yeah, I think I think there is. I think you know we're going to see the five-year people who bought you know five-year mortgages at you know between two and three percent, and now we're going to see it's five percent. And um, you know, unless they've paid down a bunch of equity, they're going to find their payments are going up. So that's going to layer on top of all the people with variable rate mortgages who are either paying much more or else they're paying making the same payment but seeing that they're they're they've stopped uh, reducing the interest on their loan uh and those people i mean here's another shoe additionally to drop all the people with variable rate mortgages where their payments stayed the same and the rate went up and they they now have loans amortized over 30 30 plus years they're not shipping away a principal how under the gun are they going to be to find a chunk of money and slam it down on their mortgage when they renew it next time you know, money that might have gone into their RSP and their TFSA is now going in to pay down their mortgage balance so they can get the numbers back into some kind of balance. Uh, another question. Are there certain financial topics that have become overcomplicated for everyday Canadians, taxation, retirement income system, you know, stuff like that? Um, you know, I, I don't think so. I think everything, in a sense, is overcomplicated because there's so much information out there and so many voices all chiming in on it that I know people will, will do searches online and come up more confused than they were before. So I don't think any particular topic is like that, but I think the whole field is like that because, because of the, of the amount of information that's pouring out there, you know, I got a lot of questions and I think, why didn't you just do a Google search? And that's often, that's how I'll answer their question, but I can look at the Google results and pick the right one. And they see just blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, on that, and this actually ties into the next question, but also a little bit into maybe the, the media landscape today is that there is so much misinformation, disinformation out there. People don't really know how to read things, I think, in the way that maybe they used to. Um, you also see now, you know, TikTok and social videos, people talking about money and making a lot of money. I guess, what are the risks there um, when it comes to social and, and maybe that misinformation around finance? Are you seeing um, people following things that they shouldn't be? You know, I'm less worried about bad advice and like TikTok people who don't know what they're talking about. I'm more worried about scamming. I think that is, I think that's reached some sort of critical mass in the last little while. And so when scamming comes into this field and you see these advice providers and they're really just hustling some garbage investing scheme or some weird crypto investment opportunity. Um, I think that's where we have to worry. I'm not really worried about the TikTok person who says, I got out of my personal debt by doing this. And you think, well, that's kind of flaky. I don't really think there's much harm to be done there. It's the person who says, I figured out how to get rich quickly. Do what I do. Follow me. And I I bought this, this um, digital coin. I did this real estate flipping thing. Uh, I bought this particular, I invested in this real estate opportunity. 
that is where people are getting hurt. You know, I, I someone emailed me the other day and told me, encouraged me to write something on crypto scams because some member of their family had lost $300,000 in one. And I was just, I'm thinking the scamming is getting more aggressive. It's it's using AI and it's using technology and it's people are receptive to it because people feel they need they need home runs now. They want home runs in finance and they don't want it slow and steady. They want it quick and fast. And these scammers know that and they're offering it to them. So that's what I worry about when I worry about all these different voices out there. It's the scammers. Yeah. And then you have the, you know, the other, the sc- sc- people scamming the CRA phone calls and more of that happening, scamming seniors out of their savings. The seniors are really struggling against scammers. They're, 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 they're like, I had one advisor, uh, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, who said that he thinks his uh, senior clients, their number one worry, as far as he can tell, is being scammed. You know, they're being told everything has to be done online and by email and by phone and they're getting emails and they don't know who to trust. And they feel they would rather talk to people on the phone, but they're being pushed to do online and um, they don't know what's real. And they're worried about being scammed and they're right to be worried about being scammed because the predators are out there and they are increasing. Um, So what's the advisor's role there? Do they have to educate? How can they kind of help their clients? This advisor I spoke to, this is what he told his clients. He said, call me if you have any questions. He says his number one suggestion was talk to two people in your family or your or your network or your friend group and say, I was approached by this. Does that sound legitimate to you? And he said, don't hesitate to call me. I will tell you any. He said any contact that's related to your money, you call me and I will work, we'll work through it there. Now, I realize advisors don't want to be clearing houses for weird emails people are getting because we get so many. But I do think that if someone, if you're thinking, you could tell your clients, if you're thinking of making a financial decision based on some email from someone you don't know, please call me first because I can maybe save you a lot of grief. I think that's the advisor's rule. Like you're a human screen between them and the scammer. Yeah. Um, So we just have a minute left and I got to ask. Journalist to journalist here and with all the advisors here, what do you think of, you know, I guess the media landscape today, we've seen, you know, there's always layoffs. It's not the best industry to be in. You're working at a national paper. How are you feeling things uh, at the Globe and just just your thoughts on kind of the media landscape today? Well, you know what? The media landscape is under a lot of stress right now. You know what? Um, they... they um it's not, it's not that we lack readers. It's that, you know, the advertising environment has changed. And that is, that is, that's what, that's what the big difference makers, people still want to consume what we produce. It's advertising, but I feel very fortunate to work at the Global Mail. We have great ownership, committed ownership. We're strong. We are not laying people off. We're building up coverage. I am really lucky. I have, I work at the best media in the country and I have a great platform and, you know, I can't imagine a better place to do what I do. And we're, uh, you know, just on the value of advice. Do journalists have to show their value? you too do you think uh, maybe more than ever before with so many other things out there absolutely absolutely everybody's got to and uh, you know I've, I've had uh, I've been doing what I do for a long time and I think my part of my value is all the experience I've had and all the stuff I've seen and my ability to explain it to people but I put it on the line every, you know multiple times a week you know and, and you know if people are clicking on it reading my stuff and I'm that I'm doing okay All right. Great. I'm going to leave it there. I wish we had another 30 minutes, but hopefully we'll have you back on at some point uh, soon. But thank you so much for joining us today. Great conversation, Brian. Glad to do it. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.